futureless repetition on the treadmill of capital. No more submission to the drudgery of labor, productive and reproductive alike. No more reification of the given mask as critique. Nothing should be accepted as fixed, permanent or given, neither material conditions nor social forms. Liberation rests on the construction of the consciousness, the imaginative apprehension of oppression, and so of possibility. We want to cultivate the exercise of positive freedom, freedom to, rather than simply freedom from. This is a struggle between life and death, but the boundary between science fiction and social reality is an optical illusion. From various sides, voices are raised to demand immediate peace. There has been enough bloodshed, they say, enough destruction, and it is time to finish things, one way or another. Hello and welcome to the ARC Audio Review, the podcast where we talk about the ARC Books online literary and cultural journal. I'm Nina, and you were just listening to our in-house political correspondent and co-host, Stina. We got a little bit carried away on the sound effects. Hope you liked it. This episode, we will be discussing this month's theme, Manifesto. In a little while, we will be talking to Franek, Scheiker, and Macon about xenofeminism, the new Polish feminist movement, and safe spaces. But first, our co-host, Ebba, will be talking to Simon about cults. So stay tuned. Okay, hi. So we are here today with Simon to talk about the theme this month, Manifesto. Hi, Abba. Hi. And Simon has read a book called Terror, Love and Brainwashing, Attachment in Cults and Totalitarian Systems. Uh, And in this book, you came across a concept called disorganized attachment. Do you want to speak a little bit on that and just um, maybe how it relates to um, this month's theme? Um, right, so Alexandra Stein is a social and developmental psychologist, and she's uh, she's also a survivor of being involved in a cult herself. So she was involved in a, a food collective or food cooperative movement that eventually turned into something called The O, which was a radical Maoist movement that went around doing some quite nasty things in the 70s. Um, so she's part of a research group that are all themselves survivors of cults or cult-like experiences so they're sort of writing from a place of like academic understanding but also personal nuance which I think is what balances out her account quite nicely Um, so she's not just explaining broken people in the sort of like Mm -hmm. classic like problematic psychological way Um, disorganized attachment is the theory she latches onto so normal attachment theory would be like um, like when a, a chick is born and looks up to the mother hen and is like, oh, you're going to nurture me and look after me. It's that classic, like, oh, yeah, identifying people, positions or institutions in your life that look after you and support you and sort of help you develop as a person or being. Um, disorganized attachment is when that process breaks down. And she specifically writes about that in relation to how in a lot of cult or cult-like or totalitarian organizations, people who are implicated in these organizations tend not to be able to recognize whether the organization is having a positive impact on their life or not. 
So you have that classic sort of maybe like Christ-like figure within a, a cult who's like, oh yeah, I'm the, the great leader who's going to lead you into heaven and it's all going to be beautiful and I'm going to fix your life and repair you as a person. But at the same time, they're a terrifying individual that's treating both their subjects and the outside world in this like typically scary, controlling, coercive manner. Um, and she's very interested in how that duplicitous behavior causes people to go into a trauma state where they then are capable of perpetrating things that they wouldn't normally do were they otherwise happy, healthy, and in a good place in their life. Mm-hmm. So I think her approach to this topic is really interesting because it's not just like a an ideological dressing down of like neo-Nazis or something. And she, she looks at a wide spectrum of political or religious organizations from like left-wing extremism right across to the Klan and sort of addresses how this has more of a like, it's not rooted in one particular totalitarian or totalizing ideology being necessarily dangerous, or she even stresses that there's no agreed upon profile of who is likely to be involved in an extremist movement. So it's not like, oh, if you're a young person from X ethnicity and this level of education, you're more Mm -hmm. likely to become a terrorist or so on. There is no proven link. It's more about the, the circumstances in which people find themselves and the organizations they have the, misfortune to come into contact with during a time at which they might be more susceptible to this exploitative behavior. So I think her work is really cool in that regard because it's a much more like empathetic and humanist account of how people get involved in terrible movements rather than just being like, oh, these people are evil, they're doing evil things, (laughs) which I feel is quite a, a dismissive way of dealing with politics and also one which neglects that the people who are necessarily or understandably complicit in movements aren't you know they're not always fully happy actors Mm -hmm. in what they're involved with i don't which then brings you into all these sort of moral gray areas of like oh then how do we persecute or prosecute or condemn or criticize people who are involved in things when ostensibly you can prove that they may not have been in the best position to have been involved in what they were doing um she doesn't really address those questions, but I think they're quite nice to raise rather than just having this sort of like stereotypical like, oh yeah, I'm going to argue against this ideology by deconstructing it and proving that everyone who's on the other side is, you know, demonstrably wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's her work. I think it's really wonderful and definitely worth engaging with. That's super, super interesting. Um, thank you so much, Simon. Thank you. So if you want to read more about terror, love, and brainwashing, you can check out Simon's review of the book on the ARC review, uh, which you can just find on our website. Hello, and welcome back to the ARC Audio Review. We are here today with lots of new fantastic guests that I'm going to introduce you to now. We have Franek. Uh, hi. <laughs> and we have Shaika. Hey. Macon. Hello. And we have Ebba. Oh, hello. And we have Stina. Hi. And we have Nina. That's me. And we are Ebba, Stina, Nina. We're the co-hosts. And we're new, so bear with us. Um, so we are here to talk about manifestos. And as a sideline theme, cruelty, and we're going to talk about why manifestos come about, uh, how they come about, what forms they take, um, and we're going to try and talk a bit about safe spaces, we're going to talk a bit about feminism, we're going to talk a bit about xenofeminism, which some of you might know about. So to start us off, we're just going to 
talk to the three guests about their articles and what they wrote about and maybe just like a thought that they have about how their article relates directly to manifestos um, and cruelty. Um, so maybe if we start with Franek. Mm-hmm. Franek, if you just tell us what you wrote about. and Yeah, I have not written about anything, but uh, I translated together with uh, Lola uh, an open letter, which was a manifesto, which uh, I came across uh, in February, I guess. So when we knew we were going to have a theme of manifesto here happening and we knew we were going to have the Xenofeminism uh, event, uh, a group of uh, Polish feminists uh, wrote this open letter where they uh, proclaimed the changing of the feminist guard, uh, uh, that was uh, a letter which was basically partly uh, a criticism of uh, of uh, reactions of many people to uh, the Me Too movement and uh, and many attempts of women to speak up about the the violence that they've been experiencing in Poland. But I think this this letter was uh, very interesting because it also had this very positive side to it, uh, or like a very constructive uh, side and. And they basically came up with a list of proposals uh, they believe we should all nowadays agree upon when it comes to themes uh, uh, surrounding uh, uh, violence and, uh, and abuse of women uh, and kind of create some sort of uh, ground, a reference ground from which then on we can build up uh, more precise initiatives. And yeah, it's been published in Polish. And I thought, yeah, it, it kind of would be very interesting to also have uh, have it in English and uh, give chance to people abroad to actually find out a little bit about situation in Poland, which is really, really tough. We probably come back to it a bit later. And yeah, we got in touch and uh, and, and then the, the authoresses were very, very uh, optimistic and enthusiastic and we ended up publishing it so that was that was great i have not written it <laughs> uh, but the translation uh, was fantastic uh thank you yeah uh there's been a lot of help surrounding it uh, actually but yeah i think i think it's my, my worry at some point was if this is a relevant relevant piece to even uh, to even have and publish but today reality proved me wrong it is a relevant piece i think we're gonna come back to this as well and it goes back to a uh, to the unfortunate happenings back in my home country, Poland. Uh, but yeah, that would be that would be pretty much what the text was about. Yeah. Thank you very much, Franek. And Franek, the text that you translated was like a classic manifesto. So it was perhaps along with the text that Megan wrote about, which was xenofeminism. Those two are kind of like strictly mm. speaking manifestos. And Shaika, you wrote a piece that was about safe spaces, which is related to manifestos, but it's not directly a manifesto, you yeah. say. It's sort of, yeah. So maybe you want to say a little bit about that and what you wrote about. Yeah, sure. So um, my article is called Why Safe Spaces Are Essential to Navigating Bullshit. And Great title. <laughs> thanks. And actually, yeah, it, I have a blog that I started about a year ago. And yeah, I've been kind of writing regularly in it since then. And... I wrote this post kind of out of many frustrations that I felt myself. I don't know, I guess maybe I went through a bit of a sort of spiritual journey or something where I was like <laughs> trying to figure out, okay, well, like, how can I navigate the things that I experience in my life and so on? And like, I mean, of course, I already had the blog, but I kind of been thinking about writing this post, which was dealing with things that 
bother and disturb you and kind of sit at you and stuff. So, I mean, I wrote it and it was very personal and I didn't think about it as being like a manifesto or anything. Yeah, then I saw Franek and we were on a night out and he mentioned to me that, uh, yeah, that you guys um, also like have people that you could publish um, that I could publish with you guys, for example. Mm -hmm. And so I'd been thinking about, okay, well, what have I already written? And what is a manifesto? And I guess a manifesto is just sort of about your own beliefs and sharing your beliefs. And that's also kind of what my blog is as well. So, I mean, it's just, or it's kind of about my own experiences, but that is also your beliefs as well, I guess. So Mm -hmm. I thought that this post maybe would be interesting for other people to read as well. And I shared it. And also you write quite a lot about sort of... um certain tools that you can use to navigate bullshit day to day. So I guess a manifesto is also like a toolbox for moving in a certain direction or changing things. So and I thought that was quite interesting in relation to manifestos. Yeah, I guess so. Um, yeah, and then of course, like the theme being uh, safe spaces and stuff, it was also, I mean, I t- talk about it in my blog post, but it was something that I had never really thought about. Yeah, actually it kind of started on a night out with a friend and, we were talking about, okay, what is a safe space and is this place we're in a safe space? And we agreed actually it kind of is. And then we also were thinking about, okay, well, what about a cigarette, for example? Is that a safe space? Because, you know, you you can take yourself outside for five minutes and there's like interesting statistics about like that women are more likely to be smokers than men and... And it's like, well, why is that? It's kind of like, okay, if you're removing yourself from a situation, then you're also creating a safe space for yourself. And yeah, we were just thinking about all these different things that could be safe spaces all night. And then I also was thinking about my blog and I was like, oh, maybe that's also a safe space. But I guess I'd never really been, I'd never thought about it in those terms. So to label it was kind of different, I guess. Very interesting. And last but not least, Macon. Uh, you wrote about xenofeminism um, in relation to an event that you organised. Um, and maybe you want to say something about that, manifestos and cruelty and safe spaces. <laughs> <laughs> cruelty. Yeah, so it, I, I wrote about this uh, manifesto by a group of um, like philosophers, artists and activists called who write under the name uh, Liboria Kubonics. Um, it's a group of uh, six women who met at this uh, summer school and they came up with this thing called uh, Xenofeminism, a, a politics for alienation, which is kind of a, that's their novel take on things is that um, it's not that uh, that kind of classical thing that we've become alienated under capitalism. It's like we've already alienated ourselves in like systems of language and communication and abstraction and actually that's where we even have the power to like develop things like birth control or medicine that stops people dying during childbirth and actually allows people to have full developed lives as subjects and asking like what do we need to what do we need to do to like denaturalize certain um disciplines like science and mathematics and rationality as you know coded as air quotes masculine um and so they wrote this text, which is a kind of inspirational thing about trying to like work out what the present would look like from the future where all of the issues of uh, gender inequality have been kind of resolved or made irrelevant by the changes to even what a human is. And then that ties into you know, so many, uh, yeah, it, it ties into a lot of different things. It's, qu- it's quite a fascinating text. And I uh, tried to summarize it very quickly because it's got a long lineage and it's somewhat complicated but somewhat also kind of intuitive as well and it was uh it was fun to put together this event with um one of the members from the the uh, collective uh, diane bauer who is an artist and writer and 
We had a great time, I think, yeah. <laughs> Agreed, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Macon. So maybe we should just go straight in with some questions that hopefully will link all of these three things together in a smooth and seamless way. <laughs> Impressionistic. Precisely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sounds like fun. Yeah, please go ahead. <laughs> okay, well, I have a question. Yes. So any three of you or all at once, <laughs> just be civil. <laughs> I wanted to ask about, um, this was also in another piece on the review by Naeus, who wrote about A Room of One's Own and Virginia Woolf's um, essay, obviously, and um, how that essay might still be relevant as a manifesto for women today. And uh, she wrote in her piece that it was kind of like this declaration of principles, but it's also kind of a guide um, as to how to behave and to tie back to what Nina was saying or hinting at earlier, I think. I was wondering to what extent you think a manifesto should be a guide for the actual implementation of an ideology or should it just be more of a declaration <laughs> of what's like actually just obvious about how the world should be? I guess that's quite like if you say a manifesto should be like this or it should be like that, then it's quite rigid and maybe you're already limiting yourself by saying it should be a certain way. So I guess it depends on what the topic area is and what it is you're trying to convey, because I guess it's really uh, like subjective to what it is. And I mean, things like ideologies and beliefs and stuff can be very abstract and there would be different ways for implementing them depending on what it is that you want to get across and so on and what the circumstances are. I mean, mm. so... Yeah, I, I was thinking about it today as well. What makes a manifesto? Of course, I do not have a definition for it. But <laughs> what struck me is uh, it seems like those texts uh, come across not so much because you plan to, to write them. So it's not uh, your reason which dictates, oh, I'm going to write this or that. But it's rather a certain energy which, which accumulates and certain sense of you being positive that something is the case. It could be just the case for you. I think you uh, you mentioned in your article that you do not believe that what you say everybody should adhere to or, or follow. Uh, so there is it. It's not necessarily always by definition just something which which you want to have as a guide for everybody else. Though of course you could if this is actually your your belief. But to me, it's more like releasing some sort of energy, some surplus of energy in in, in a form of word. It also becomes something rigid, something out there which you can then refer back to. Uh, which is, I think, especially in case of movements uh, or ideologies, or if you think of art movements of modernity, they also mm. like to have a manifesto behind their art as a sort of reference point almost. But uh, if this should be a prescription of what to do, I'm usually very skeptical uh, <laughs> about yeah. The idea that it's a fixed thing, um, it's both useful and not useful. Like it's not, it's not useful to think that I, I don't know what it should be, like before you make it, it's not useful to be, for it to be fixed. But once you make it, it is kind of useful to be fixed because like you've kind of like drawn some sort of, you've drawn a shape and you can point to that shape and say, this is um, a set of ideas that I can, I thought it was quite interesting talking, um, we were talking with Diane after after the event, she was saying, because they wrote that manifesto collectively in Google Docs across the world, when you'd write something in the morning and then, you know, someone wakes up in Australia and like edits it and then your idea is gone <laughs> or mutated beyond recognition and you're annoyed about this, but also... Um, but also like, okay, well now this is my turn to move. Um, 
And then also that, you know, the manifesto comes out and there's points that they all individually disagree with, but it's a thing to point to and they have to hang new ideas off. Hmm. Wasn't this the, I mean, at least to me, this seemed to be one of the most interesting parts about how I understood Xeno-Feminist uh, manifesto to work was that it was an actually kind of a flexible thing. It was just created, but not as a sort of a final uh, credo, so to say, but rather as an invitation to work on it and 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 and, and get it mutated. Like, yeah, yeah, that was, was not wasn't that the part of uh, of the of the idea. That that is a big part of the idea. It's more it's more about. Um, uh, yeah, about throwing uh, the, way, the way I put it in the thing was like after something like Deleuze where he talks about like a, a shock to thought, and you 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 you're forced into thinking in that moment, mm. and then you and then you could like you know radically disagree with it or radically agree with mm. it or kind of be lukewarm on it, and then that's but you have to have some sort of response to it, and then you then you move away from it. But I think also because it's it's more of a large scale, it's almost. I don't mean to diminish it by saying this, but it's more like an art project, like an open source art project, mm. um, where they've got a set of ideas and they're they're putting them out there and they're letting people play with them. Mm. Um, whereas, like both the things that you wrote about, both of you wrote about, are more either in like kind of daily experience or more like a, an immediate political problem. Mm. Yeah. Um, and and that so it it's a, it, maybe that that is also a different kind of manifesto in that mm. sense. Though I also I think they also have some immediate things. But they, they're not really flexible anymore, or do I misunderstand? Because it seems very sure about it and very kind mm. of like, um, how do you say, defined in, a, like in an open way still, in an abstract way, mm. but um, not that flexible anymore, I would say. No, it's, it's, not, flexible. it's not flexible in itself, but it's, it's not about itself at that point. Yeah. So it's about the, the... They have this wonderful line in the, in the manifesto that talk about... Uh, the next generation being less and less troubled by the things, the problems of uh, gender power dynamics, and that they have this line of a, uh, we celebrate our obsolescence, bring on our progeny to take us over. So basically, they're kind of inviting, rip this up and make a new thing. Once you've found a new idea from this, so it's kind of like its flexibility is out of, um, is about you know how it can be ignored eventually. Yeah, I was just thinking as well. And this um, feminist manifesto is quite, I mean, maybe nice isn't the word, but it's good that there is some concrete suggestions at the end, I think, because I think it's also if you have something that is really important and current like this, that you can refer back to it. And I mean, if you had some if certain beliefs that you could be like, OK, this is what we're fighting for and this is what we want to do. And you have concrete suggestions like to have it kind of in this structure also makes sense for it. And I think that when I read that and I was like, OK, these are the things that mm. they want to do and they want to try and implement and encourage mm. people to do that also really makes sense. And that context mm. I thought so yeah yeah I think yeah that's that's definitely true like it kind of ties into my idea that one uh one obvious reason at least to me of having manifesto in this very clear and uh and and, and clearly stated and formulated form is definitely symbolic because suddenly it becomes a point and it's a statement and it's a uh, you almost make a gesture by 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 actually writing it and producing it. It's it's, it's almost like an act, even though it's a text which is which is created. Mm. It has some sort of uh, feeling of of almost a political action mm. in it's it, right? Performative, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And and in this sense, yeah, you need those 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 principle principles become maybe somehow uh, bestowed with some sort of 
even grander meaning than they would have if this if the text wouldn't be called manifesto. But the second one, uh, or like second meaning of, of of having them is obviously they, uh, at least in the context of a of a text we've been working uh, on on translating, was that those rules, uh, obvious as they may sound to many, they don't seem to be obvious at this very moment. So there's this very practical almost sense that certain things have to be announced uh, just because they seem not to be a part of, of how people seem to be thinking about the world, which again, to many, they, they seem obvious. They might seem obvious to me, but or, or to us, or I don't know, to, to big groups of people. But this also reminds us they are not. And then there is still an actual and real political need to, to actually restate them and re, re, like repeat them and, and keep, keep uh, voicing them, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh. I, what I thought was really interesting about the, the, the manifesto that you translated was the kind of intergenerational mm. um, aspect of it. They seem to really be trying to talk to an older generation of feminists who mm. had were misunderstanding something or maybe they felt like the older generation of feminists, I think they called them the the, the feminist authorities or something, yeah, yeah. were not really kind of um, having their back, having everyone's back. And yeah. there seemed to be like a generational slip. And Shaika, in your article, you talked about the issue of there not being safe spaces and institutions. And I felt like that was also linked to a kind of generational thing. You have like kind of old institutions that are steeped in. Yeah, it was just this kind of generational thing that I thought was really interesting in manifestos where you try to sort of address something really simply, but also to a specific group of people across the age groups. Yeah, I mean, maybe it is also a generational thing, but maybe it's also like an institutional thing and nothing of of power as well. So when you have institutions and people in power then how do you create like safe spaces then because my personal experience of university then like if you do have someone who is in a position of power like a lecturer or so on maybe they should also have some kind of obligation to create a safe space and if you don't have that from the starting point then I mean then it isn't a safe space and then the things happen that are uncomfortable and strange but I mean I think if you had a starting point where the person who is in the position of power were to say okay like there are certain things that we would tolerate but we would also like to have this this and this or whatever it is then maybe everyone else would feel comfortable or would address the things that they talk about differently with acknowledging the fact that this could also affect other people in a way that maybe they hadn't thought about. I think that's like really interesting to include this idea in this context with manifestos because maybe I don't know if we've really like drawn it out so much yet but I think that there's a way in which coming off of what Franek was saying about the manifesto being kind of a performative action like I think you can think of a safe space as its own as a manifesto almost in and of itself in that it it has this ideological like rules in a sense um and I thought maybe it'd be interesting if you could just elaborate more on what you think those rules could or should be, or if maybe they're different um, and oh. super individual. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not really sure. I, I was kind of thinking about this earlier as well. And I was thinking about, so when you go to like a club sometimes and a certain type of club, sometimes they have like this list of expectations that they have when you come into this space. So it'll be like, we do not tolerate homophobia, racism, sexism. And sometimes there will even be like 
a desk or something or they'll be like if you see anything or you feel anything you can come to this person or you can come to this desk and we will sort it out for you Mm -hmm. and I guess it depends on the space and who is coming in it but like having these like guidelines are really useful I think and then setting maybe the boundaries and stuff that you have and your expectations so then in like my personal context and if I'm talking about safe spaces within my friends then it's like okay yeah it's not like we would say that to each other but there were certain things maybe we would acknowledge that okay we have our own boundaries and there are certain expectations that we have from each other and if we cross them then we would want to address them and I guess that's also a thing then like a parallel with the club it's like there is some there is some way to address something if something is not um, mm-hmm. happening in the way that you would want it to or whatever. Yeah, because I think it's, um, I was thinking about it too, of whether or not um, in relation to to the Virginia Woolf essay and also mm-hmm. to xenofeminism about um, this idea of freedom and if perhaps the safe space then is this manifesto for freedom for individuals who might not experience that um, in like a quote-unquote natural way in the world because of the way society and because of the power structures. And so like thinking about the safe space, do you think it this freedom maybe to be or freedom from like these power structures? Like how does it function between those things? I think it is for sure maybe it can be the freedom to to be, but with a certain respect as well. So, I mean, then it really depends on the context of it as well. But I guess in a safe space, you would want to think about how it is you are approaching the other people around it. So there should be like a possibility for an open dialogue about things that maybe are uncomfortable. And that's also what makes it a safe space is the ability to be able to discuss or do things that maybe aren't you aren't normally able to do. But it's the way that you then go about doing them and that that's everyone knows that that's okay for that to happen in because everyone has allowed that, I guess, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So I think it is definitely the freedom to be because you wouldn't feel comfortable to do those things normally and in, yeah, if a safe is unspace and uh, if a space is unsafe then of course you will <laughs> oh my god <laughs> unspace <laughs> yeah then I don't think you would have the courage to maybe yeah open up and be like you say so yeah cool I was also thinking because in relation to sort of freedom to and freedom from and there's often like a kind of sense especially around the me too campaign that if you want freedom, you have to kind of accept the danger that goes that comes with that. You have to accept that that means that everyone's free and that things can happen and all this. And there seems to be a, a refusal to talk about like freedom and safety, like like freedom, like setting mm. some rules that can actually enable freedom, like how that can be mm. a structure for freedom. And in relation to manifestos, they're very much speaking to power. So they're mm. sort of speaking to it and saying we're proposing a new structure Mm. that actually enables freedom on a much larger scale um and with it comes like safety Mm. and the ability to be vulnerable because there are these these two like freedom definitions coming from like the notions of like positive and negative liberty and like the freedom from restrictions and the freedom to do things and then this is also then what 
that I am brought up in relation to like some other thinkers about this notion of synthetic freedom, which is some sort of fusion of these two things simultaneously. Like you can't, you're not able to like freely build something like some sort of community without, you know, someone freeing you from hunger or from, um, mm. and I think, but I think that it gets really nuanced. We talk about like the relationship between danger because there will be some danger in being free to do something. Um, but where the point really does stand is like, if we know certain things can be prevented, like the whole point of us living socially and actually, you know, being, you know, relatively rational creatures is we can go like, oh, well, let's just not allow that fucked up thing. <laughs> you know, um, there's unexpected things in the freedom too. You know, like you do an experiment, something explodes. But that that is like a, like a secondary unforeseen thing which no one could really plan for, you know? Whereas, you know, someone uh, abusing their power over you is something we should be able to foresee and should be able to structure against. Right. What I thought was interesting about the translation um, you made, Frenek, mm. was that it's very practice-led in a way. Mm. It gives like certain points to what should improve. For instance, there are points like each person who is a victim of abuse has the right to react and talk about what happened. And then mm. there is like another one which says... If you do not know how to support such a person, ask and ensure that your actions are of service to them. Mm. So they're quite specific. And um, I thought that was very interesting. If you want to have immediate change, for instance, within a society. Mm. But it also works within like very clear categories given. And that's what I thought was very interesting when I read the Xenofeminist Manifesto. Because that one suddenly operates more on a what I felt like on a long term mm. pointing towards what might be wrong about those categories and kind of like trying to frame them differently or look mm. at them differently. What you also wrote in your text, Megan, in the beginning or quoted is like if nature is unjust, change nature. And I was wondering if you would like to say something about it. It's like a, it's a it's a incredibly provocative statement that they make at the end of the manifesto and I I, I, I we already do it like it's it's kind of like in some ways it's so super banal like we sit around I'm wearing glasses because my eyes decided to give up over some natural accordance of my use of them um we, we we're doing we're doing it all the time it's just it <laughs> part of it is them also yeah, t trying to um reframe that concept of nature um because I think one of the frustrations they see is this uh, notion they find in some in some feminisms where like uh, the reason why women have been historically oppressed is because their proximity to nature, which is so you know, and not in the whole rational man's world, and they like they just completely reject that outright and say that you know rationality is a sort of is a is a product of of nature and natural occurrences. They do say that their whole project is a, is a wager on the long game of history. So yeah, I feel kind of like. Um your guys' three pieces are talking, are all kind of operating on different scales almost. Like you have the kind of individual or like community scale with the safe space. And then you have the kind of national with the feminist manifesto for Poland. And then you have this kind of like xenofeminism is like intergalactic or like, you know, it takes like this completely other dimension you know, they they function really well, like, together. Like, they all necessitate each other because I think if you have the Xenofeminist Manifesto in isolation and you don't have these kind of um, 
other manifestos operating on a more um, on a different time scale as well, mm. on a more immediate time scale, then um, you, you can't get to that level, really, mm. I suppose. Yeah, I was also kind of thinking about your question as well yeah. um, and about categories and stuff. And when I read the Xenofeminism article, I, didn't, I mean, I didn't come to mm. the, the talk here, but I'm not going to lie, I was kind of had to read things quite a few times because mm. I really didn't understand <laughs> it. And, me too. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and oh, yes, yeah, I was like, of course, I mean, it was really interesting and, and so on. But I was also kind of struggling a little bit with this kind of, yeah, like changing nature and so on, because mm. it's, of course, that's like something that you would, I mean, mm. we'd want to strive for and like, you know, social constructs mm. and blah, blah, blah. Mm. And, but also like, at the end of the day, we also live and experience mm. ourselves as who we are and stuff. And I also have quite a struggle with these kind of ideas that, yeah, of things being able to be perfect because like the lived experiences of, of people and stuff is also <laughs> so real and can't really be denied. So yeah, I don't think they think they're going to make it perfect. They're just going to make it yeah. different. Yeah. And I think they just basically their whole thing is just saying that there's nothing necessary about how it is now. And so, and we should like, be aware that we've already changed it and we could change oh. it more. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, of course, that's yeah. a really positive thing to strive for. Yeah. But like, yeah. It's, it's also, yeah. <laughs> it, it, but I think also, if you think that a sort of manifesto, right, is an, is an answer to some sort of problem, you see, because surely if there were no problems, there would be no point in uh, writing manifestos to, uh, to hopefully mm -hmm. change them. And then the nature of the thing you oppose, obviously, as you, Ebba, said uh, about operating on different scales, they differ in our examples and it illustrates of, uh, it just illustrates how many different possibilities for struggle they are. Like uh, the text uh, from Poland, it is a very focused text which refers mm -hmm. to a very particular problem, uh, which is the, which, which is the, uh, the, all the violence against women revealed by the Me Too campaign, which has been happening in Poland tacitly. Uh, it's the it's the anti-abortion laws which are very strict and uh, as we talk today uh, my my social media so me is just full of uh, news that, uh, that the parliament just decided that soon they're gonna start voting on a uh, or they, they're gonna start working on a, on a bill which is gonna make it even more restrictive and uh, massive massive protests are being called again so basically the starting point of the whole manifesto uh, the, the protests of uh, back in the day, the Czarny protest. This is all going to happen again this very Friday. So, so in this sense, yeah, this is this this manifesto is is manifesto which is rooted in a very old school political struggle against a very tangible oppression, which is a problem. And in this sense, maybe it has some more. Uh, uh, Camel days, you would say here in Denmark, like more. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to say antiquated, but like it, it, it kind of goes back to to to, to, mm. to the revolutionary kind of uh, sentiments. Yeah, Whereas this, yeah. this was so. This was the um, this was the thing that Dan brought up quite a lot in the talk was the need to have like how do we do like that kind of grand scale and local simultaneously, especially yeah. when someone like made fun of like uh, like you know A to B protests sort of things. Yeah. And she was like, well, that's also how you build communities, and that's how you yeah. like you yeah. can't just dismiss it because it's not computer enough. Mm. I wouldn't even call them antique or gamma days. As we talked about, they just like like the different manifestos are very important and I just yeah. think they um, work on different like immediately or like short terms and then mm. there are other that work more on long terms. Mm. And I think both are kind of like 
like very important mm. because you could also say the manifesto you translated it's kind of like a step towards a change that can lead to different categories than mm-hmm. as external feminists. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that that, that, that term was definitely not to uh, to diminish the 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 nature, rather in in, in yeah. contrast with this futuristic yeah. approach yeah, yeah. Uh, advocated by Zeno feminism. Uh, yeah, this this one really sort of mm. takes us back to the I don't know to mm. the to the sixties maybe yeah. or even before, like when 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 people really did rather took to the streets motivated by the emotion and 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 sense of of some harm being done without well that might might not be necessarily mm. true for everybody but i i believe a lot of the masses who've been on the streets they they might have followed uh, some political and intellectual slogans but it wasn't as if mm. it was the intellectual movement which actually motivated it it was obviously tangled uh so it, it in this sense, it was this this political action, maybe in uh, Hannah Arendt's terms, of like need to come together and do something together, mm-hmm. and act rather than uh, engage in uh, in reflection on it, which I kind of sense was way more uh, informing the Zeno Manifesto. So it, it it kind of is rooted in the yeah. But even that itself is also you know it's it's six women who have a, a sense of fellowship and community yeah. amongst themselves. They yeah. create. They've actually created. They've created a space. For themselves yeah. on a personal level yeah. to even operate, so you you it's you you can't dream of the future without having like some sort of mm. environment in the immediate experience where, where you feel safe to express an idea. Or, mm. A yeah. safe space, some would say. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I mean, if, if, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well played. Well played. <laughs> But also in relation to that, I thought what was interesting about the feminist manifesto um, that you translated, Franek, was that they talk about how important the they talk about how important the organizations are and the initiatives and the marches and the protests and the direct political action. But mm. they also say, and actually they say most importantly, uh, privately among ourselves in our homes, get togethers and parties. And I thought that was really mm. interesting in relation to safe spaces mm. because they're essentially saying that actually so much of what we did mm. in non sort of strictly speaking political spheres was actually mm. um the kind of roots or the basis or the kind of no. places where we were able to yeah yeah and and yeah and again this is a this is an understanding of politics which is uh, really close to me uh, uh ever since i came across it and uh, again Hannah Arendt's rendering who who is not so keen on the on the partisan politics and uh, and basically she speaks uh, to this idea of of action between people who are equal and then they come together and decide to do something together for whatever reason they deem uh, reasonable and it's uh, to me this message is especially valuable nowadays when Time and again, the, the the party parliamentary politics is kind of a disappointment. Like whichever country you look towards, like the, 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 it just seems to be a joke. And you kind of have a sense that those people who do get to decide and who are labelled as politicians and actually doing politics, they're really doing something else. And that cannot be the real, uh, or like put it differently, that that there must be something else about politics which can be done. And I think. Uh, all those uh, grassroots uh, bottom-up uh, initiatives—they are really, really important. And in this sense, 
in, in different constellations, they recreate the same kind of spirit of like people who who do feel that there is something wrong. They really do feel something needs changing. And then they don't know how, or they may not have the means, but they know that if they come together and, 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 and start doing things, there is a chance it's going to come come out. And I guess the, the fact that we had a xenofeminism uh, manifesto event here is, is a proof that it happens. Like once you're out, you will catch attention of like-minded people. Get together again, old school, old school revolutionary <laughs> politics uh, scenario. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. It's what uh, our host of the evening, Abbas, said. He's like, he he uh, he believes very much in the political salon of people getting <laughs> together and having a conversation. But yeah, this is also maybe the thing we talk about the kind of like the the basic sort of mm. insight from feminism in general, like 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 probably back in the second wave, like the personal is political because it's mm. yeah, and. Maybe that's all, all the, yeah, that's maybe the most important manifesto of the day. <laughs> I was going to say that might be quite a nice note to end on. Yeah. If anyone has uh, any final thoughts otherwise. Mm, not thoughts, but I could uh, agitate, <laughs> right? In a, in a... Yeah, agitate. Please agitate. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the cause is right. Also, also. So uh, Amnesty International is having a petition to uh, help women and girls in Poland fight dangerous new restrictions on abortion. Uh, yeah. And uh, and they say Poland already has one of the most restrictive abortion laws in Europe. Abortion is only allowed if the pregnancy is the result of rape or incest, if the woman's life is in danger, or in cases of severe or fatal fetal impairment. Now the parliament is considering a bill to add even more restrictions to this very limited access. So basically, if you want to do something, get political. <laughs> Uh, take action, as as uh, as it says on uh, Amnesty International website. Please go and uh, and sign and show support because yeah, protests are coming and things going to be happening. So yes, Shaika, I was also wondering mm -hmm. if you would like to refer to your blog actually, um, so people can find your texts. Yeah, <laughs> so my blog is www take dash your dash skin off well take take your skin off with dashes in it dot <laughs> blogger.com yes so uh, you're welcome to follow it otherwise you can generally find more content from uh, these lovely people and others like them on the arc website in the arc review and arc other arc audio content ventures yes <laughs> soon there's going to be a podcast on how we're getting our card from the bank <laughs> <laughs> stories long it's called uh, roll is windy uh, it's called kafka's bookshop <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for today guys thank you thank, thank you, you for listening We'll be back next month talking about a brand new theme. In the meantime, please feel free to leave us feedback on our Facebook page and remember to check out artbooks.dk for more incredible content. <laughs>